Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Colin. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Uh, it is a we're talking in mid March and having a conversation about the reality that it is stupid cold here in the Mid Atlantic. You're down in Washington D.C. I'm about a hundred miles north of you in York, Pennsylvania, and uh, and we're talking about the weather. I think we're doing that a lot lately. I've just the probably the last dozen or so episodes. Uh, maybe that's not a good thing to uh, to think that we're talking about the weather. Uh, but nonetheless, Colin, it's great to have you on here. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation. Before we dive into our big idea or bold opinion, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, happy to for hosting me. And 
hopefully uh, I can, you know, kick off a conversation slightly more interesting than the weather. Uh, let's right. see. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, time will tell. Um, so a little bit of an intro. Uh, my name is Colin Stewart. I'm here in our nation's capital. As you said, I am a proud father, a leader, a attempting to be a runner and a forlorn Washington Wizards fan. Um, I have worked the intersection of fundraising, technology, and marketing for over 15 years now. Currently at a technology company called Arjuna Solution, um, where I am focused on empowering donors and influencers, really, to to steal a line from a talking about earlier, Lisa Greer, uh, to revolutionize the traditional philanthropic model and really help non the nonprofits they care about permanently scale their impact. And that's an important word, permanently scale their impact. So um, looking forward to kind of unpacking that with you and seeing if you uh, think I'm full of it or or if we have some alignment here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't suspect at all. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't I don't suspect that I'll think you're full of it, but I'll certainly uh, push push back on ideas that I might disagree with. I'm usually pretty, anybody who listens to the to the show knows that I don't mind doing that, but um, I I really like uh, before we dive into your big idea. I like the idea, or I like the realization. For the sake of my listeners, I like the realization that a company like yours perhaps exists to empower. I think you said to empower donors, and then you mm-hmm. wrapped it up with to for permanent impact. That's an interesting. Um, I'm sure you're going to tell yeah. us about your company throughout the conversation, um, but I think one of the things that um, perhaps you've heard me talk about on the podcast and others certainly have is that there's a, there's a, there's an emerging, and I don't know that they're terribly emerging. I don't know they're particularly new, but there's companies perhaps like yours that are starting to exist in greater numbers that are helping the donor on the giving side of these things that I don't think us on the receiving side, a lot of the services that are provided to the nonprofit sector in terms of fundraising are oftentimes on the receiving side. You know, it's those of us who consult with and provide technology to the charities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Is that side of the world, before we dive into the big idea, is that sort of the, is, do you see that side of the, the exchange sort of growing? There are, I've got a couple of peers at different companies, tech companies, who are trying to influence the, the donor side as well. When I right, say donor, I side, high yeah. net worth individuals, you know, uh, major donor side. And uh, frankly, it's it's new to me. Uh, and Arjuna about nine months ago. Um, yeah. and I had always been on the kind of side, let's, you know, response, acquisition, digital, fundraising, sure. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that I think is so interesting about this. I came to Arjuna and I got a couple of peers, like I said, at other groups, um, I know, which is part of the Every Action um, uh, Cyber Network, it, you know, has has a similar sort of practice. But it's the idea that, you know, it requires in your services, right? That what you're ever, whatever you're providing to the nonprofit, in our case, we help nonprofits raise more money. Other organizations help them, you know, uh, better services, what have you. But when you're able to, have a service that you know provides a real value to organizations. And, you know, we all 
difficult it is for nonprofits to, you know, invest in themselves. And, uh, you know, we can yeah. go on about that. You've, you've <clears throat> talked about it. Um, I'll talk about it here. Um, but it's a budget cycle. And if there's a way to empower donors to make gifts that are able to circumvent some of the, you know, race to the bottom metrics that nonprofits are incentivized around and provide direct services, technology, talent, whatever the thing may be that can, you know, ROI. I think that's really compelling and I I can unpack that more for you. But, you know, I I have seen more and more companies out there realize that there's maybe a way to kind of uh, take a shortcut, some of the budget cycle issues and some of the funding issues and and go directly to donors to underwrite the costs of this technology, these people, these, these services, if there is a real ROI attached to that. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly we could we could probably go down any number of rabbit trails in between the lines of everything you said there. Um, so I'm looking forward to this conversation, yeah. Colin. We we ask our guests to come on with a big idea, or bold opinion uh, as it relates yeah. to fundraising. That's all we sort of require of our guests. And um, and generally, I don't know where you're coming from. In some cases, uh, I know uh, who my guests are, and I probably have a sneaking suspicion sneaking suspicion as to where they're going but in your case you and i have just met we haven't known each other more than 10 minutes uh so where are you going to take us well first off it's been about been about 14 minutes so you're 14 underselling okay. the depth of our relationship jason um <laughs> and you know beyond the weather uh you know my here is i think fundraisers should be fundraising for fundraising um, is the big idea. Okay. Um, and let me explain what that means. Uh, so it's up to the bottom mentality that nonprofits are incentivized to kind of attack and, yeah. and have. And, and we know the way we think about nonprofits in many ways is backwards. And I myself pray at the altar of Dan Pilata on a lot of this uh-huh. thinking. Um, okay. You know, you've talked before on your show. Um, we know that operating expenses, technology, infrastructure are the kind of things that really enable nonprofits to grow. And right now, we are handcuffing their ability to invest in their own growth to achieve better outcomes. And that's why nonprofits exist, to fill the gaps between the public sector and the private sector. We don't live in Denmark, right? We need a robust nonprofit ecosystem here. Um, yes. But the incentives are are all backward, right? Um, they're penalized for paying staff or investing in infrastructure, right? And that helps them deliver better services or God did provides better donor experience or helps them raise more money. And you know that pernicious pie chart that you see in all the donations, the backward sort of virtue signaling that all these nonprofits are taking a vow of poverty, that they're all saints, and that 92 cents of every dollar goes towards programs, and that whatever that little sliver remaining is, that however large it is, whether it's 8%, 9%, whatever it is, that component that's investing in technology or fundraising services, um, you know, they're incentivized to keep that as, that as the stuff that actually helps the overall pie increase. It's lunacy. That increase represents real impact in the world, whether that's 
people getting food or medical research or animals being saved or the environment being conserved, what have you. Um, so that's the context. I'm not the first person to have that thought. I'm not the thousandth person to have that thought, but it's important context for my kind of big idea here. Um, so then I talked about, you know, at the intro, how they can help nonprofits. They care about permanently scale. I want to kind of explain that what I mean by that and how fundraising for fundraising uh, enables that. Um, thing I've seen and heard a lot in the major donor space is that a lot of pressure put on them, right? To increase sure. the size of their giving, provide yeah. to provide a six figure matching gift that they alone are the ones who can write the checks to sustain an organization. And is that flattering? Maybe stressful. It's certainly not sustainable. I think we can agree on that. And this is why I believe fundraisers should be fundraising. Um, and yeah, I know it's that? a little bit of a yeah. I know it's a little bit of a silly yeah, phrase. So, um, so 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 I've read Dan's stuff and um, sure. and I. And, and my criticism of Dan's stuff is that is it's the same and that I talked about in the first book. It's the idea that too much of fundraising, it's it's my general critique of the whole contemporary fundraising practices that were too overly invested in what I call the initial gift. So, you know, we're investing tremendous resources to get the first gift and we don't know how to secure the subsequent gift. And, and I think, and I think when I think about what Dan's message is, you know, he he was remarkably what his, him and his company were doing and, and what his arguments were are largely around was investing significant resources and time and people, et cetera, et cetera, in securing that initial gift. But there should be a, a, a sort of a declining or a high, a, 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 an increasing ROI as you move towards an investment in, in more of that subsequent giving. Um, and so, so when I hear someone say something like what you're suggesting, the idea that we invest in fundraising, are we investing in fundraising so that we can invest in that initial gift? Or are we talking about actually learning how to secure that subsequent yeah. gift? Yeah, it's a, it's a great and an important distinction. And frankly, you know, my own, you know, comment is I'm not at, Investing just in acquisition or advocating just for for just investing in retention, building authentic and transparent and trust-based relationships. I think you need to, to do all of those. But the reality in my mind is the practice of fundraising, the department sure. within these nonprofits of fundraising, that sure. is the one place where if I put a dollar that department, if I give it to a chief development officer or VP of advancement, they can turn that $1 to $2 or $3 yeah. or $5 or $10, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, so when you donate to an organization, you know, typically we find, you know, an organization who, let's say they've got a great back to school program, right? And I love the back to school program that they have at a couple of schools. It's brought if I give them $10,000, then they have $10,000 for a back-to-school program, which is great. But if I yeah. give them $10,000 invest in, whether it's events, whether it's fundraising technology that helps me feel 
you know, exactly the right amount to ask each individual donor. That's what we do at Arjuna Solutions that creates a kind of sustained lifetime value relationship. Um, or if it's in some other form of technology or, or talent, you know, they can turn that $10,000 into $20,000 or $30,000. So instead of scaling to two schools, they can scale to eight schools. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a bank shot if you think about, you know, the, the, the value prop to, to donors. But I do believe that when we about investing in fundraising, ability for nonprofits to multiply the impact of existing giving and provide a measurable ROI, which a lot of these, not all of them, but many of them, savvy investors, you know, successful business people who understand, you know, the, the concept of quote unquote overhead, right. And revenue generation, you know, it's not that big a stretch. And, you know, we've seen a lot of interest and excitement among the major donor class in the multiplying impact of their giving. Um, so, you know, that's what I think the overarching which, thesis is. Go ahead. Which I think is, is, and, and you're going to have to sort of unravel. Maybe we'll, we'll sort of get you to sort of tell a story of sort of how this plays out um, uh, in, a, in yeah, sort of, sort of a storyline. Um, and um but I think, I think the smarter we want to get, and I'm going to offend half the sector on this point. Oh, good. I'll take the other um, half. But, okay. I, but that's usually what I'm doing yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, so part of the reason why this simple, simple, simple concept that I introduced in that first book between the initial and the subsequent gift, I, I think part of the reason that it rattles the sector in so many ways that it does, or it rattles the fundraising space as it does, it's that we don't like complexity and complexity requires that you see multiple types of gifts. I think Mm. fundraising likes to see multiple types of gifts. And I think if I'm reading between the lines, you're describing to me a story of one donor who's giving multiple types of gifts as that relationship matures and becomes more invested. Um, But with complexity and to see that, you know, to, to see the fact that uh, Lisa Greer, our mutual friend, for example, sounds like we both had conversations with Lisa, you know, that first gift that Lisa gives to your organization is a reflection of one thing. And every subsequent gift that she gives to your organization, I, I would argue in my experience tells me is a completely yep. different story. Yep. Um, I don't think the technology space has picked up enough on that that ongoing story. And so consequently, we just keep sort of going back to, you know, the, the what were the original, you know, how did we secure that original gift? Um, that subsequent gift becomes messy. It becomes unpredictable. It becomes more content, contingent on the relationship even existing. It, it becomes more contingent on who the fundraiser is. There's a lot of sort of unknowns that sort of play out. Um, it doesn't feel like PR and marketing anymore. It starts to feel like the relationship that you have with your grand- grandmother in some cases. I mean, it's a relationship. I don't think we want that. I don't think we want that. Yeah, well, it's the look. Uh, I've been married for a little bit, and I can tell you one the relationships are hard, right? <laughs> right. Yes, uh, you yes. got you got to work at them. You got to invest in them. And yes. um, 
um, you know, it's, it's not always a walk in the park and, and that's not easy for folks. Um, and, you know, it takes commitment and listening, right? And, you know, those things are, are hard and it, it takes acknowledging, you know, your own failures and, and, and being authentic, your own authentic self. Um, so, you know, and look, I've heard you talk about that very, you know, need on this podcast for us to do that uh, as fundraisers. Um, you know, I'll, I will tell you a story about how we have seen what I'm talking about bear out. This is kind of the the uh, for for this practice that we have, and why we're really evangelizing this story, why I'm evangelizing this story on places like uh, like this podcast. <clears throat> um, so, to explain the the model, I need to give you a little bit of context for what Please our do. solution yeah. does at Arjuna, um, without turning this into an infomercial. Uh, which is, we are a company that marries behavioral modeling with artificial intelligence to help nonprofit in direct response fundraising. Um, okay. So what that means is we figure out on our proprietary algorithms exactly how much to ask each individual donor um, yeah. in direct response, primarily direct mail that maps their lifetime value to the organization. So yeah. if you and I, Jason, were both uh, donors to Boys and Girls Club, they're not a client, but they're not. If you and I are both donors and we each gave a hundred bucks last year, you know, they're going to send us mail, email, asking us for, you know, basically what we gave last year plus 20%. It's a little bit more complicated than how they figure out what that ask amount is, but it's not that much more complicated than that, to be honest. And the reality is you and I have very different relationships with Boys and Girls Club. Maybe you were a club kid. Maybe your boys go to a club, um, different independent interactions with them. And uh, as we pull all that data in and start figuring donation elasticity for each or for that specific organization at a specific moment in time. So yeah. as where you gave a hundred bucks last year, reality could be your, the highest level of your elasticity based on all the indicators you've given over the course of your relationship is $250. So I should be asking you for that amount. And that's a, you know, dollar Delta or 130 between the 120 and the 250. That's all kind of, um, money that was being left on the table. So we do that for all sorts of nonprofits. Um, we're very proud to do it. We And here's the key thing. We deliver about an average across our portfolio, $3 for every in our services. So there's a three to one return. So, so, so the only pushback, and if you've listened to the podcast yeah. enough, you know that I, I don't have a problem with the the behavioral economics. I don't have a problem with the artificial intelligence. I've got a problem with the direct response. When does that artificial intelligence, for example, and, and this is the issue I've had with the direct response world my entire career. When does that behavioral economics, that, that understanding of, of sort of what behavioral economics is, which largely is, is a, is a, is a science that has sort of evolved, you know, subsequent to the direct response world and all this artificial intelligence that we're going to perhaps be relying on here in the future, when do those two uh, disciplines, as we might call them, tell you that direct response is no longer the, ch the channel with which you want to raise that next dollar? That's the question I think the direct response yeah. world has always been unwilling to answer, is that when is all this 
predictive when does the predictive tool tell you the the channel you've become really comfortable using right. is no longer the channel that you use. Yeah. I mean, it, he, here's the thing, Colin, you and I could develop a friendship here and we could develop a pretty meaningful friendship over a platform like this, perhaps transition it over to zoom, but there's probably going to be a point where we're going to say that this conversation probably you're down in DC. I'm a hundred miles North of you. There's probably going to be a point where we're going to say, Hey, we need to meet in Baltimore for lunch. Yeah. And I don't know that the direct response world has ever ever been willing to consistently sort of advocate for the idea that there is a point at which that relationship needs to come out of that channel. Yeah, uh, it's a great point. I think there's a couple of components to that and the ways that services like Arjuna's or, or, or others can help. Um, one, you know, figuring out efficiency. So when do we send people messages? When do we send solicitations? Are we sending too many patients, right? And the reality is, and I could tell you, because I've worked on the agency side my whole career, and I'm probably going to piss off that entire sector right now, and I'm I'm happy to do that. Um, We'll do it together. Yeah, good, good. Uh, (laughs) Is, you know, um, the incentive for a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, consultants are around volume. You get comped yes. on volume. Right. right. Reducing the amount of volume that you're mailing hurts letter shops. It hurts the creative shops. It hurts the analytics shops. It hurts the co-ops. It hurts everybody. So there's not much in the way of economic incentive for the kind of ecosystem of direct response consultants to cut down on volume. Now, to, there's to, mandates. To to, to answer that question, you're saying there's no incentive to actually answer that question honestly because the system is designed in such a way that to to move that donor, Mr. Smith, to move yeah. that donor out of that volume pool is to is to essentially undermine the incentives for which direct response relies on. Uh, well, you're saying. I, absolutely, uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. And so, just from an end donor experience, you know, uh, we all say. Mail, right? We all send too many emails. Um, but, you know, it takes a really brave nonprofit who's willing to her or his consultants and say, no, we do need to cut the volume to provide better experiences. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, when you are able to identify or flag donors who have potential to in lunch for Baltimore, like you're in your example, who have the potential to kind of move the relationship uh, offline into, into real yes. life. Um, right. You know, you, you need to have some level of indicators, you know, going to be some, some ROI on that and doing that at scale is tri- tricky, right? If you've got a direct mail file of a million people. Um, so you need tools like Arjuna's that are able to move people up the kind of giving ladder more quickly identify who has a higher need to give, and then based on their behavioral kind of uh, positioning uh, towards you, then be able to kind of work with the mid-level giving programs and the major giving officers and kind of flag those candidates for, look, these people have a higher elasticity than you understood, and they could be worth the conversation at least getting put into a different kind of uh, lane in your in your direction response program to, to move them up the ladder. 
but but there okay so and and again i'm not picking on the predictive tools i i have sort of an agnostic relationship with the well screening companies for example but inevitably this conversation about moving the donor out of the direct direct response stream and into the for example we're going to meet in baltimore and have lunch and we need to a certain roi Usually when that con- when I'm talking to someone from the direct response world, what they also don't understand and what I've rarely gotten a sort of a meaningful response from uh, when I'm talking to that DR person is they've never sat across the lunch table with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, knowing that the data says yeah. that person can give you $50,000, which is you know exponentially more than they gave you in the mail last month. They're not in the habit, nor have they spent any time in their professional career sitting across the table with a donor that can give you $50,000. And the donor, I mean, the fundraiser, Colin, I don't know how many of those types of calls you've made, but the worst thing you can do to to Sally or Jim, the the, the major gifts officer for the Boys and Girls Club that are meeting, you know, that that's meeting there in Baltimore, the worst thing you can do is actually tell them during that initial meeting that this person can give you $50,000. That's the worst data point that you can actually give them. The best thing you can do is just tell them to go meet with this person. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think the direct response world mixed with the well screen well screening sort of world could actually do the fundraising world some favor by actually keeping some of that information out of Sally's, you know, purview. If does that make sense? We, yeah, that's we, a great we point. haven't sort of and gotten I- a sense all Sally needs to do all Sally needs to do is go see if she can make a meaningful connection with 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 Mrs. Johnson in Baltimore over a cup of coffee. We can worry about whether she can give $50,000 later. Well, I, I think you're right. Um, and I think we all get so excited when we have a piece of information that it's what we're doing, that yes, we want to sure. share it and, you know, say, hey, look, you know, uh, Sally, about this donor. Right. Um, yes. And that makes us feel good, right? Um, but yes. I think what you're talking about is a culture sh- change, and I think that's that's interesting and, and, and certainly compelling. But I did want to go back to a little bit of the kind of the broader story, if I... Okay, that's fine. Um, um, which is, okay, so, and this is kind of the genesis of, of this, this fundraiser should be fundraising for fundraising kind of idea. Which is yeah. okay. So we've got this service that delivers a three to one return. Um, yeah. You know, we've been working in the nonprofit space for about five or six years. About four years ago, there was uh, in New York who was who knew about us. Um, he was approached by an organization that he supports. Um, you know, and like any good organization, they were asking him to increase the scale of his existing giving. And that's their job is to ask people like him for more money. And he said, guys, look, it's not in my budget or my plan to give you more money. Um, However, there's a company over here that says they can give you a turn on um, for any investment. So what I'm going to do is instead of giving you my, you know, $75,000 check, I'm going to give you a $75,000 check in the form of Arjuna services. And that Sorry. if they do what they say they can do, ought to deliver, you know, over 200 grand to you guys. And there's sure. your, you know, incremental money. And so that's what he did. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and that was the, you know, we 
and build a community of donors who are excited about not giving a penny more, but actually enabling nonprofits to invest in invest in technology and invest in their own growth and start in this kind of self-perpetuating flywheel of revenue. And so what I mean by that is you think about this in terms of capitalism, right? You make a you make a gift, it's the principle. That's 75K whatever the number is. Yeah. Um, and the fundraising department is able to use that to invest in whether it's our Juno services, whether it's another major gifts officer, whether it's a series of events, whatever is the right way to spend those dollars to multiply their impact. So then you have proceeds from that, which is what the development department does. They they create, uh, you know, they take those, they invest it, and they get proceeds from that. And then you're able to take those proceeds, and you can do a couple of things. You can some of it towards mission and towards you know programs, which is wonderful. Then you take a portion of it and invest it back into whatever the is or whatever the talent is or whatever the technology is that's helping yeah. to you know provide those proceeds and that surplus and you going revenue stream um so when i talk about fundraisers fundraising for fundraising yes it's a silly phrase but ultimately it's how do we go out there and have a real conversation with donors about their to start a self-sustaining and permanent revenue stream for nonprofits but it requires giving a little bit. Um, and, you know, that's the big idea. And that's the story that precipitated, you know, our evangelism of the idea. So, so when do we have, okay. So I've, I've only, you and I've only known each other now, I think 43 minutes, I think is what, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, it, and it wouldn't take, you know, I've been in the fundraising space my entire professional career. So I can eventually get my head wrapped around what it is your proposal is. And, and I'm sure yeah. it's terribly innovative and it, it'd probably be something that I could advocate for. But Colin, it's a part of what I think we've got to wrestle with in the fundraising spaces. And I'm, I'm interested to sort of hear where the fundraiser, my, my audience is in your equation because what my pushback is on the direct response space. So don't, I'm not, I'm not plugging you all into yep. the official direct response world. It sounds like you're doing something innovative with an awareness and appreciation for direct response. So I sort of categorize you differently, but what I think the direct response world is guilty of is creating a fundraiser who doesn't know how to have some of these sophisticated and complex conversations that essentially you're describing to me. I think there's 80% of our fundraisers out there, and I've said this on some of our recent podcasts, I think 80% of our fundraisers don't want to have conversations that the increasing complexity and messiness that fundraising requires of it, I don't think they want these jobs. And so they're signing on for these jobs you're advocating for this system that perhaps takes direct response and technology and behavioral economics. They, uh, Colin, they don't want to have those conversations because they were trained up in a system that was supposed to be much simpler than that. Yeah. It's like you said, it's complicated, right? The, the <laughs> word that getting that second gift is complicated. Talking about this and you know, the, the, the kind of framework of capitalism is complicated. It makes people uncomfortable, to be honest. And there are some people like, you know, uh, who, who find the idea that I've just kind of told you about truly objectionable. 
Um, and <laughs> uh, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I still think it's a good idea. So we're still going to keep trying to do it. I mean, shoot, um, Colin, and, I, yeah. I've been in, I've been at enough direct. I've been in, I've been in front of enough donors. Anybody who's raised any significant dollars in this yep. country or any other country, anywhere on this planet, anybody who's ever asked for upwards of five and six figure gifts knows that it doesn't require Jason and Colin to put some of these innovative, complex, difficult proposals on the table. The donor will do that for you. So it yep. doesn't require you or I on the fundraising side to necessarily come up with these ideas. The challenge is, is that when we get to the lunch table, when we get to the lunch table and Mr. Smith makes the same proposal that you're essentially making, you know, when the donor's making these proposals, do we have someone, you know, do we have a fundraiser and do they, do they work for a board and a boss back at the office who don't get deer in the headlights, you know, look on their face? I mean, that, that's the real question, right? And this is, are people going to activate around this idea because it is hard? Because it is hard, yes. Because it makes uncomfortable. And my argument is, you know, what is it? We don't go to the moon, you know, because it's easy, but because it's hard, right? Uh, that, you know, I, I butchered that JFK quote, but, you know, <laughs> the, the math behind. Out. We have seen it work in real life, and we have seen perpetual revenue streams be created through this type of investment and through these sorts of you know complex conversations. And I challenge you know development officer listening to this to think about you know how innovative do you want to be, and how much do you want to challenge your staff to help you evolve in the world and whether it's the idea i've put forth or, or some other innovative funding model you know i think we we all know that you know we need to have to steal our friend lisa's line a, a sort of revolution in this space to have the hard conversations to be able to report back with transparency about what we're trying to do and um that's going to benefit our programs it's going to benefit our missions and it's going to benefit the you know the 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 kind of perpetuity or the, you know, permanent our legacies in terms of giving. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I would I mean, how does not an easy answer. We, it sounds like we both read Lisa's book. We both engaged with Lisa. If you've read Lisa's book, you know that she basically talks about two different ways of engaging with organizations. If you watch what she's putting on social media, practically, you know, every couple of days, you know, and she's communicating with the, you know, the major donor, we'll call it the sort of the major donor population, or tr at least trying to, and perhaps having a lot of success at it. Um, but she talks about basically communication in two different channels. She's getting mail. There's nothing wrong with that. So she's, she's in the direct res response stream for a lot of organizations. But if you read her book and you interact with her, you also know that she's sitting across coffee tables and lunch tables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how... You know, when you look at your product, for example, Colin, it's one thing to tell me that you're going to improve upon the the, the, the direct response strategy that gets to uh, that gets to Lisa, but at some point you're going to be in Southern California. You're going to be sitting across the coffee table if you're that organization that wants to appeal to her and her family mm -hmm. or her husband and, mm -hmm. and and identify with her in a meaningful way so that she writes you a check. 
you're probably going to be sitting across the lunch table from her at some point, and she's probably going to expect it. Most of the disappointments, when I think about going back reading her book, most of the disappointments I think that she describes in her book, and I, I forgive me, I could be completely wrong on this point, but I think most of the disappointment that she she describes in that book actually happens at the lunch table, not in her mailbox. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one thing that I think, you know, is a mistake that fundraisers have um, is when they're sitting across the table is to, you know, to oversimplify things. You know, are these right. donors are right? I right. mean, you, you know, they right. can you didn't become a, you didn't become a, a member of the model. 1%. To, yeah, you didn't become a member yeah. of the 1% by being an idiot. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, so, I think we can treat them like grown-ups and expect them to understand a complex thought. And if they, if it's not for them, then it's not for them, and that's fine. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you truly believe that opportunity to multiply the impact of giving through fund, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do believe that fundraising is worthy in some capacity, whether it's direct response or or some other you know mechanism. Um, that funding that practice can help you get more funds for your mission, then I think you ought to, you know, have it on the menu, right? At that conversation as something that, that you think could, could be worthwhile. And look, there are a lot of donors out there who've done well in technology, who've done well in business, who understand these sorts of things and could be, you know, excited at the prospect of donating, whether it's, our AI services or Salesforce technology or whatever the thing may be. Um, so, you know, there's some profiling and kind of interest matching that can happen with certain kinds, you know, technologically sophisticated or savvy or, or what have you donors. Yeah. I, I, I think the fundraising world, it, it's, it's, it's interesting that our conversation is sort of drifting towards this notion of sort of this oversimplification. I think, I think a lot of what the history is, I think about this book project that I'm wrapping up right now. We've got a lot of our fundraising practices originated from an oversimplification of who the donor mm -hmm. is, who yeah. the human being is. I mean, if you go back to yeah. you know, early 20th century consumer, Ed Bernays, all the different characters that were basically trying to run the world at the beginning of the 20th century, there was an oversimplification of behavior. Then we get to the end of the 20th century and we, we, we round out the century with things like behavioral economics and we realize that people are not nearly as rational. The world is not nearly as yeah. linear. Then we move into the 20th, 21st century and we got things like everything from September 11th to the recession to the pandemic that's just making things far less predictable than we necessarily, you know, assumed it to be. And I think, Colin, what, you know, the, again, the more I get my head wrapped around a company like yours and some of these other technology, I think the more a company like yours perhaps leans into how are you going to get to that subsequent gift? And how are you going to help Sally, that fundraiser who's meeting with someone like Lisa in Baltimore for lunch and not, you know, scare the shit out of her by showing her a $50,000 number before she sits down and just tries to yeah. eat a, you know, BLT or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that's some of the, and, and then going back all the way to, you know, the mention of, uh, of, um, 
Pilata. You know, when I think of Pilata's 15 minute TED talk, I think he just basically conveyed to the world that fundraising can be fun and that we got to pay people better. I don't think that's the conversation you and I are having here today. Fundraising is not necessarily going to be fun, and it's not really just about putting a lot of money into it. We actually have to have highly talented people sitting at that lunch table with Lisa. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And from a from you know, you got to take that talent of your your you know, highly skilled uh, major gifts officer who can sit down with Lisa, you know, not interrupt her bike with a $50,000 ask and, you know, not be a jackass basically and handle that conversation with transparency and treating her like a grown up, which she is. Um, And how do you keep that? You know, and I, I, you know, we keep talking about direct response. How do you replicate treating people appropriately across, you know, the mass market? Right. And that's where you need smart, because you can't human beings can't do that because there's just too many right you can't make that many decisions so how do you use smart technology ethical technology um, that's bias free that enables you to make the right decisions about how to ask people for money how much to ask them for money when to ask them for money and the right kind of method to ask them for money that maximizes their relationship to the organization that's the talent you want to invest in to sit. I want that person to go out to LA and have lunch with Lisa. I want the most talented person I can find. And if I'm thinking about communicating with a million people in the same way, why wouldn't I want that level of talent replicated there? You just need to find the right technology solution that can provide those levels of decisions. Yeah. I mean, I had a conversation. I mean, the first thing, the first, the first, <laughs> the first challenge we have in the fundraising space is, is, is that before I ever interacted with Lisa, I read her book. And I think, yes. you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many fundraisers out there determined to, you know, receive support from her and her husband, for example, are willing to read her book. The next thing is, is that you get on the phone. I, I learned more about Lisa and her family by getting on the phone, not, not even not knowing much more than what she told me in her book. Um, and I didn't need to do a well screening to figure any of that out. Um, but, but there's an intuitive sort of nature to my sort of, I've sort of learned that through a professional career and I, I know how to sit across the table virtually or, you know, literally, uh, with a major donor. And I think, Listen, I, I don't think direct response is the problem. I, I think what we've got is, is I think we're moving into, um, I just think we're moving into 21st century fundraising. And the last couple of decades with the recession in September 11th and a couple of these other, you know, in the pandemic more recently has sort of stalled that transition. And so if we can get any sort of stability in this world here and then say the next decade on the back end of you know, several decades of difficulty, fundraising might actually merge and become a remarkable thing. Um, and direct response is probably going to have a meaningful role to play in that. But I like to think that maybe a shop like yours has a better sense of what the complex world looks like than some of these shops that you know originated during the middle of the 20th century. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah, it does. And look, we're trying, right? We're trying to to provide profits with as many resources as they can have to achieve their mission, whether that's 
through increasing their direct response fundraising or working with donors to you know help create these self-perpetuating uh, and sustainable revenue streams and it's complicated the donors are get it uh, you know and i hope the organizations that are listening to this podcast and and elsewhere can wrap their heads around the need uh, Lisa's revolution and the need to evolve and the need to, you know, treat people like grownups and, and create those trust-based, long-lasting relationships. So uh, we're working at it. We think it's important. We think there's an opportunity to do it on both sides of the coin there. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. But we're excited about it. Yeah, I like that. Teacher, teach, <laughs> if 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 more fun, and, and I think and I think our challenge will wrap up on that thought, Colin. I think I think I think that's in some ways because I I refer to the fundraising space as sort of being in its messy adolescence when fundraising grows up, and we also start recognizing that our donors are perhaps a little more grown up than we think they are. We won't necessarily make them out to be sort of the wicked witch of the West, but we'll actually make them out to be somebody who can sit, we can sit across the table from or somebody we can put some mail in their mailbox who might actually read something with some, you know, with a degree of intelligence and, and discern whether that's actually who they want to give to. Colin, uh, if somebody's listening to our conversation, listen, man, I don't get a lot of follow up. People know f- people follow up with me when they want to, but usually conversations of this sort will generate some follow up with a guy like you. So if somebody's listening to our conversation today, I always like to hear from a guy like you. Who do you want to hear from? And then how do they how do how do you, how do they do that? So who who is yeah. it that after this conversation today, who is it that you're most eager to hear from? And then how do you want them to reach out to you? I love how you're asking me that question, Jason. I would love to hear from anybody. Um, you know, I'm stuck here on the couch a lot. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm always happy to get a message. Uh, but specifically as it relates to your audience, I think the two types of people I'd like to speak to, donors who are interested in, you know, giving in a new way. Uh, and funders, uh, organizations who are interested in kind of ser- AI services that help them raise more money um, and, you know, how to talk to their donors about that. So those two cohorts would be, you know, great to have a follow-on discussion for. Best way to get in touch with me uh, is email. So uh, my email address is Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at Arjuna solutions.com that's c-o-l-i-n at a-r-j-u-n-a solutions.com i would love to hear from anybody listening colin it's certainly been a pleasure you're certainly always welcome back thank you jason have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. 
We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.